I think at the end of the day, it comes back to what type of relationships we have with our, um, with our team members and that they feel valued. Um, and so even though we might have a really stressful summer season, which we did, um, those relationships and putting them first, I think helps us kind of ride those waves. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Woo! Yeah, yeah. I got a question for you. All right. Have you ever seen the movie Vacation? Yes. <laughs> Have you? you? Know? Oh, Yes. Many, many times. You know, when they're driving kind of early on in the in the journey and they come up around St. Louis and they see the arch. Did they get to go up in the arch in the movie? Well, Matt, you said you've seen the movie. And I'll be honest, it's been possibly a couple of decades since the last time I, I watched it in full. So please tell me what happens when the Griswold family gets to St. Louis. <laughs> they I know not. what happens when they get to California. Of course, yeah. of course, the Wally world. No, they did yeah. not go up the arch. Yeah. Um, Rusty asks, um, you know, first of all, Clark is telling them all about the arch, how tall it is, blah, blah, blah. There's an elevator that goes all the way to the top. Rusty says, can we go up in the top? No. And they keep driving. So they didn't go, they didn't go up get to go up in the arch. I've never been in the arch, but you have. I have been up in the arch because I wasn't with Clark Griswold <laughs> St. Louis, thankfully. I, I did. I was I was there, uh, it was several years ago. It was probably eight or nine years or so ago. And um, I was staying at a hotel that's right at the end of the street downtown that's right at the base of the national park right there. So I had a few hours free. I was there for work and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the top of the arch. And it was such an interesting experience. I, I, unlike anything I've ever done before, you know, I've been to the top of the Empire State Building. I've been to a lot of a, a lot of observation decks. I would well, with, I, uh, which I, I think you can classify this as kind of in that in that category. I, but the tram is so fascinating. The museum that has the history of of everything is is so fascinating. Not of everything, but of, <laughs> of the museum of the American West of of how it was built. All that I you know is is so fascinating. And then being at the top is one of the most unusual but uh, interesting experiences. Why why so unusual? Well, you get to the top and there it is. You can you can just walk out onto it. The you know the arch is an arch, right? So there's no flat floor, so it's it's well, it's arched. arched. And there are windows on both sides of it. And the way that the platform is, you can walk up and kind of lean over so you can look out the window. And I just remember thinking, if I lean over, am I going to shift the weight distribution of the entire gateway arches? You know, or then I'm, you know, obviously like, I, but it's obviously I knew that I wasn't going to, but still standing there looking over it gives a, a very, a very interesting feeling. And, and the view is absolutely phenomenal on both sides. And uh, the 
tram ride itself is one of the most fascinating experiences. It uh, definitely might be uneasy for some people who might be claustrophobic or uh, uh, don't want to be near other people. I would say I, I got in. There was a family with me, and it was just us. We, you know, we we went to the top, uh, and of course there were there were other people there. And then then uh, you go back down to the bottom, and that's that's the attraction. That's the experience. Yeah. So this episode of the podcast is not about vacation. Although you could argue that most of our episodes tie into vacation at some point or a vacation. But today we have Sarah Clark, who is the director of operations at the Gateway Arch. And we get to hear all about the mechanics of how things work, what to do if someone is uh, a little claustrophobic and, um, you know, all the things about the, the guest experience at the Arch. Yeah, we get to hear all about the operations, a lot on operations leadership as well. And Sarah talks a lot about that. We talk about putting people first, uh, both from the guest and the employee side of the experience, uh, as well as thinking outside the box. We heard about uh, just innovative ways that uh, they were able to change throughout their entire renovation, which was uh, a few years ago, as well as through the pandemic as well. Uh, and we just get to, to cover uh, you know, how, they, how they thought outside the box to come up with several unique ideas. So did they think outside the box or outside the arch? Mm, that's a good point. Mm. That's something to ponder while everybody else listens to this great interview with Sarah. That's right. So Matt, can we go to the top? Let's do it. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We're really excited for our conversation today. How are you? I'm great. And thanks for having me. Excellent. How are you both doing? Doing great. Absolutely great. Yeah. Uh, so Sarah, to kick this off, can you give a, a quick intro? Tell us about yourself and your career in the industry. Sure. Uh, so I am a native to the St. Louis area, born and raised, and now I live here um, with my husband and my two kids. I currently work for the Gateway Arch um, as the director of operations. And um, prior to that, um, I was kind of going back and thinking about it. I Went to school for recreation management about 20 years ago, and I'm very fortunate to still be working in a related industry. Um, and then right out of school, I was the general manager for a gymnastics training facility. Um, I was 21 years old, and it, I couldn't have asked for a better first experience in my career as far as um, I was doing HR, I was doing the marketing, I was doing the facility maintenance, um, just everything. And so I was you know, scheduling um, roof contractors, leading a team, and that really on that level has helped me so much in my career, um, be able to just apply it with everything else. So Sarah, I'm curious if we could go back to that first job. You mentioned so many different hats that you had to wear and different things yeah. that you, you had to do. And you mentioned that it's still helpful today, that experience. Can you um, maybe go a little deeper and talk to us a little bit about how those experiences really shape what you still get to do today? Sure. I think it really taught me to really focus on the big picture of how it affects everything, whether it's the facility, um, the team inside of it, the the guests um, and the students we were welcoming in every week. And that still applies now. So when I did have to um, troubleshoot or work up a, a solution for a particular challenge um, in that smaller venue, um, those lessons I learned are still very valid when we've worked through much bigger challenges like um, our large scale construction project or working through COVID mitigation strategies. Um, all of those um, helped get us to that point. 
Yeah. Uh, so now leading into today, Director of Operations mm -hmm. at the Gateway Arch, uh, can you tell us, for, for those who perhaps haven't experienced the arch or who haven't been to the top, can you walk us through what the experience is like just when you arrive on site at the property? I know you go underground, there's the museum and then the funicular up to the top or the elevator. I'm not sure if that's the official term or not, <laughs> uh, but can you walk us through just what the experience is like? Sure. So the Gateway Arch Monument, monument rather, <laughs> is part of Gateway Arch National Park. So when you first arrive on the grounds, it's 91 acres. Um, there's, I believe, five miles walking trails. It's just a beautiful park right on the riverfront. And then there is a visitor center that's built into the hill. Um, and there's um, a world-class museum um, that was completely reimagined. It features over 201 years of history detailing westward expansion and St. Louis's role in it. Um, and then you get to the original tram lobby that we call it. And that's where you'll find the load zones to take you to the top of the arch. Um, we have the North Tram and the South Tram that take you to the top. Um, they run completely independent of one another. And yes, yeah, so we call it the tram. It is actually kind of a mix of an elevator, an escalator, and a Ferris wheel, all, all put in one. <laughs> and so there's really nothing like it anywhere else. Um, and so you get to go to the top, um, which is up 630 feet. You can view about 30 miles in any direction on a clear day. Um, and then you also kind of get this um, bird's eye view. If you kind of, uh, the wall slanted at the top, you can kind of lean on your stomach over and you can also look straight down as far as out too. So just a very unique view. Wow. So I would imagine that the the Ferris wheel part is like when you get to the top and you can see and you've got the view. Is that is that kind of what you refer to the Ferris wheel part? The Ferris wheel, just that it continues to adjust itself as it goes around the bin. That's more of the Ferris wheel part. Of ah, it. OK. OK. Not being familiar with the actual vehicle. It was it was um, kind of hard to picture. But thank you for that. Sure. So um I, I've never actually been up in the in the arch, but there was a time when I was doing some other work in St. Louis and I mm -hmm. came to the grounds and I stood next to it like the the arch wasn't open, mm -hmm. but I stood next to it and looked up and like my knees got weak. Like, I don't know if that's vertigo or something, but um, <laughs> it's really disorienting to just stand next to that structure and look up. Um, so. What kind of reactions do you get from people maybe that haven't been there before or that are seeing it for the first time? I guess that's the same thing. Um, but people that are are coming in and experiencing it, you know, and, and kind of seeing the awe of it. Well, a lot of times people are surprised to even learn that you can go to the top. They'll be standing on the grounds and looking up and they'll see the, the little squares, the windows at the top. They can't even make out that that's what it is with the distance. But um, when they put together that you can go up or kind of, I think what you referenced, you can stand right by one of the legs of the arch, walk right up and touch it, look straight up. Um, I, I really like when I'm on the grounds and I hear kids commentary about it, um, about how tall it is, how it, how it must be there, what it's made of. They really come up with some fun stories. <laughs> cool. cool. And so a lot of people, you know, learned about the Gateway Arch probably in in school, right? When they were when they were growing up, and then you know, visiting St. Louis, being able being able to see it, being able to experience it, being able to go to the top, uh, you know, it's definitely one of the most iconic symbols in America. When you think about landmarks, and we think about uh, just you know historic places, important places, I would say in in mm -hmm. the country. What's that like of being part or being a caretaker of such a well known entity in just American history? Sure. Uh, well, I've truly just been honored to be able to have a role on the team of professionals that work to make the Gateway Arch available to visitors from around the world. 
growing up in St. Louis, um, anytime you go away, even a couple hours and you drive back into town and you see the arch, you just have this immediate warm feeling of home. So I grew up, you know, always seeing the arch and knowing it was something that was special about St. Louis, but it's also been so cool when I travel and, you know, that common question, oh, what do you do? And I start to explain and people kind of look at me and they say, the arch, like, and they do the hand, like that thing. Um, so it's just so fun and rewarding to be part of something that's so well-known and iconic. Are there misconceptions? Like you talked about, you know, the kids talking about what it's made of and having all these commentaries and conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some misconceptions maybe about the arch? Uh, well, if they do know that you can go to the top, which like I said, a lot of people, that's a pleasant surprise to them. Some of them think you just kind of almost like a roller coaster, go to the top and come right back down. They don't know that you get out of a car and there's an observation deck at the top and you can look out the windows on both sides um, and just all sorts of things. I mean, I've heard people ask if I go up on the one side, will I come back down in Illinois, like on the other side of the river or um, there's just a whole slew of fun questions. <laughs> Wow. That would be the arch would be rotated, right? It would be you know, exactly, yeah. So you stay in Missouri when you go right. up. <laughs> yeah. I've got to imagine that for such a, a unique type of attraction, a unique type of, type of experience from the operations standpoint, I, there are probably some some unique aspects or perhaps some challenges of it that perhaps most other attractions might not necessarily mm -hmm. uh, see to the you know to the same degree. What are some of those unique aspects of of operating? the arch and, and the trams and just the overall experience uh, that I'll, I'll use the word again, unique to, uh, to the arch. Sure. Um, well, we need to make sure that every decision we make, um, you know, supports all of um, the federal laws being a part of a national park and all the, you know, the permitting, which is something that you wouldn't kind of have, say, in a private attraction and making sure any programs that we do always support the mission and the educational themes of the national park. Um, I think a challenge, which also ends up being a great opportunity, is just the amount of partners that we have here. Um, so within the visitor center, for example, we have the National Park Service. We have um, the agency that I work for, which is by State Development Agency. Um, there is a nonprofit partner, Jefferson National Parks Association. They run the retail um, portion of it. And then we have Evelyn Hill, which runs the food and beverage. Um, they're also at the Statue of Liberty. And so you have all these partners in one space. And the challenge then is how do you have this really seamless visitor experience? Because the visitor doesn't know or should they really care that we're all employees of different organizations, um, but how we come together and how we communicate to make sure that it's a great experience from the time they walk in the door to go to the top. Um, and I'm proud to say that our communication, I think, as a team of those partners really is uh, high quality. It's kept top of mind. So I feel we're really successful in doing that. So Sarah, a minute ago, you mentioned construction, right? And, yes. and I believe there was a, like a large construction project that happened recently. And um, I think at one point, it sounded like there was no running water in the facility. Um, <laughs> can you kind of walk us through that project and some of the challenges and opportunities that you, you faced during that? Sure. Uh, so yes, it was a $380 million project that um, the construction of it took place over about five years. It added um, square footage to, to the visitor center and the museum. It completely redesigned the museum um, and it improved the park spaces and also improved accessibility, which was a huge part of the project. And so while that construction was going on, um, with the exception of just a few months, we stayed open to visitors the entire time. So 
construction fences and construction walls were constantly moving. Uh, how we would have people get here by car, by foot. Um, we were constantly giving updates to staff of how to get to inside the building. Um, and what you referenced, Matt, yes, we did go a couple months where we had very limited offerings. It was just going to the top and the bathrooms were being worked on. So the only um, option we have was some porta potties outside. So it really just forced, I think the team as a whole to try to think outside of the box. We spent a lot of time in our conference room. I have a colleague who loves those really big sticky post-it notes and just um, brainstorming. And really some of our best solutions were things that we developed on these huge post-it notes. Um, and I think then really, um, once you got those kind of big ideas and those solutions, then the communication piece of making them happen. Yeah. Can you walk us through that that post-it note innovation <laughs> process or, or thinking outside the box or, or kind of a, a expand a little bit on that as, as far as I kind of you, you've got those those challenges, those limitations, running water is a pretty big limitation. Yeah. Right? So something like that. And within that that whole renovation project of uh, coming up with innovative ideas and, and thinking outside the box. Sure. So I'm so fortunate that my team, um, I'm proud to say that on the full-time team, everybody here has been promoted at least once and some people multiple times. So that has really given us the ability to uh, be able to recognize it from their different roles and different experiences. If we make this decision or try to implement this, it's going to affect you know this part of the experience. It's gonna affect these team members. So that has really been so helpful as we would sit down in the conference room um, with the sticky notes, we would be drawing out um, during different parts of construction. Um, we had to draw out, okay, we can't even get people to the normal entrance for the tram. How are we gonna take them in a back hallway uh, safely you know, and, and break it down? Just having all those um, great people at the table really made it possible. And then I think it really, we didn't know we were preparing ourselves for the pandemic, but we had so much um, experience and practice just having these, you know, fire drills of having to adapt to, you know, whatever had changed that by the time we got to the pandemic, um, it was certainly challenging, but we were able to kind of jump back into that um, problem solving mode very quickly. Yeah, I was going to ask a little bit about that. I didn't know if the construction overlapped with the pandemic. It sounds like it did not. Is it that did not. No, the grand okay. opening was in 2018 in the oh, summer. Good. And then, of course, the pandemic in 2020. Sure. So what were some of those specific lessons that you maybe took from that construction project and were able to apply once things sort of started to change in 2020? Um, I think just getting comfortable with it's okay to do something a completely different way and having experience doing that. I feel like early on in construction, we would you know, identify whatever challenge it was. And it was like, oh, but we can't do that because of this reason and this reason. But when we really would turn it on its head and realize that there was a lot of possibilities if we were kind of willing to take a chance and try it differently, um, once we got more comfortable with that, um, I think that really helped us um, in our pandem pandemic operations because we truly, once the pandemic got here, um, completely changed our visitor flow and process in a way we never had before. And um, it was a great success. Yeah. 
I like what you just said there about uh, it's okay doing something a completely different way. And uh, mm-hmm. there's, you know, the old saying of, you know, if it's not broke, you know, don't fix it, right? But rather pulling back and saying, you know, we can we can do things differently, we can do things better uh, as related to the construction project and then leading into the pandemic. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I would say, the the reopening and kind of the, the time since the reopening of uh, perhaps changes that needed to be made, uh, operational constraints, limiting capacity, kind of all of that and how you've navigated that uh, to really ensure that there's still that that seamless experience, but perhaps done in a little bit of a new way. Sure. So I think like many attractions or just any public facilities, of course, we are looking at social distancing and floor markers and those types of things. But um, once we reopened, and let's see, the building itself was closed for a few months, completely closed the facility. But then even when it reopened, we were waiting on the tram ride because um, I think you said, Josh, you've been up, but Matt, you have not been to the top, right? Correct. Okay. So um, it's a very small car to give you a sense um, that closes um, when you're on your way up. Five can sit inside of it and you're pretty much knee to knee um, with your you know, family members or um, new friends that you meet in the tram. And so, uh, you know, oddly enough, that's not the most ideal um, situation for a pandemic, um, getting that close, you know, with your new friends. So really trying to think of a way to only seat family members together, which of course impacted our capacity, but we knew we needed to do that um, for safety at that time. Um, And then also the visitor flow looked completely different. We used to, like I said, have the North and the South operating completely independently. So if you went up on the North, you came to the observation deck and then you came down. Um, for a while, we were taking you up on one side, giving you some time on the observation deck, and then you came down on the other side, which may sound little, but that was a completely w- new way of doing things um, and adjusting our visitor flow. Um, and then also procedures as far as masks and um, other disinfecting, um, you know, that was very new. And again, communicating that with all of our partners and all of our visitors um, was certainly a challenge, but um, the team did a really great job. So I'm curious through this this construction and all of your experience and then through COVID, do you have sort of a a guest experience philosophy that has sort of driven you through all of that saying, these are our sort of non-negotiables. These are the things we have to make sure that we're doing, you know, w- within all these challenges, but we still have to have this level of kind of, ex- kind of an experience. Sure. Well, really, I like to keep it really simple as far as we need to put people first. And so starting with the staff um, and the team members, making sure their needs are met, Um, making sure they feel appreciated, that they have the tools that they need for their jobs, that they feel empowered um, to do those um, and meet the guest needs. And the biggest thing is making sure they know that we care about them as a person. We care about their families, what's important to them. Um, Because if we don't do that, then I don't see any reason for them to feel that they should really be caring for the guests that come in and and, and their families and what's important to them about their visit. So first we want to meet our team members where they are um, and give them that experience internally. And then um, getting them to see through the lens of the visitor. Um, we have so many visitors who come for the first time, um, grandparents and parents bringing uh, their kids for the first time. This might be their first visit in 10 years and um, bringing a new family member. Um, so it's really a special experience often. 
Um, and our staff is so good about um, celebrating um, with our um, guests, asking where they're from and just making sure they feel really comfortable, especially because like we've said, this is a very kind of unique and somewhat unnerving experience between the tight spaces and the heights. That's something I, I wanted to ask you about because a couple of minutes ago, you you described what the experience is like of being in the tram. And yeah, you were doing it through the lens of, of COVID and you know social distancing. Yeah. And I remember uh, when I went up, it was, it was several years ago, I was by myself and I had another family in there and I was like, oh, we're all together. Like, like it's as if I'm part of this family now. Uh, and I remember, you know, they had small kids and I got in there and I'm thinking, you know, I've done a lot of thrill rides. I've done a lot of roller coasters and the, the arch is not a thrill ride, but in many aspects, it kind of gives some of those butterflies in your stomach that some maybe larger amusement attractions might do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Matt and I both have backgrounds in ride operations. So we've had to sometimes calm down parents or be able to to calm down children into saying, uh, you know, as far as what to expect, who might be scared, who might be uneasy, who might want to get out. Uh, and I'm just thinking of, of the tramp. Once you get to the top, still a little uneasy. You talked about you can you can go and, and lean forward a little bit against mm-hmm. the glass. I remember doing that thinking, okay, what if I shift the weight distribution too much? <laughs> and like, okay, the, the arch is not going to topple over, right? I So as far as kind of looking at it through the guest experience lens, you know, there's the operational aspect and the efficiency and, and the mm-hmm. capacity and the, you know, the, the COVID, you know, concerns. But as far as just making sure all guests are comfortable going into the experience where they might have those, those butterflies in their stomach. Yeah. So we do that in a few ways. We have a replica tram car. That's when you first walk in the visitor center, right by the ticket center. So when you're making that decision, um, you can get in, um, kind of feel, um, what it's like. And that's also a great photo op. So if they take those photos there, it's not slowing down our loading and unloading process on the tram. So that's really a good, um, first way to give it a test drive. Um, also our staff, is, is so good about explaining what to expect. Um, the ticket sales agents, um, they know to ask every person if they have any issues with stairs, heights, or claustrophobia. So they're able to, if you know any concerns come up, give them more details, kind of walk them through it. Um, and then down in the load zone, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten um, a guest compliment that you know, highlights a certain tour guide and says, you know, I really was about to not go up. And that tour guide just made me feel at ease or they talked, um, you know, to my child in a certain way. And I'm so glad that they encouraged me to do it because that experience was so worth it. Um, So they really do a great job of engaging with the guests and making sure they feel comfortable with the experience. Well, and that really reiterates and solidifies your people first sort of mentality, right? Is you're taking care of those tour guides so they can take care of the, the guests. And, you know, it is. I'm sure when I do it, I'm going to find out how unique it is and how cool it is. But even just talking about it and knowing a little bit about it, it certainly is a unique experience. But if you go there and you say, oh, I'm afraid I'm not going to do it, like kind of any thrill ride, like Josh was saying, like you mm-hmm. you might regret it later. Um, yes. And especially one with this sort of historic significance, I could definitely see somebody kind of walking away from it if they said, no, I'm not going to do it, of really saying, oh, I really should have. I really should have bucked up my courage. So you know, the team really has a huge impact on the experience or whether or not people are going to have the experience. So can you talk a little bit more um, about how you either train the staff or support the staff so that they have that sort of empathy for the guests and they're they're not just saying, get in, it's fine. <laughs> uh, sure. I, well, I mean, from the beginning of training, they're paired with a seasoned tour guide 
for at least uh, five shifts that's really walking them through each stage of the process. Um, and I think it's also through modeling um, that type of behavior. For example, we'll often get a tour guide that will ask, hey, is it okay if I um, leave this post for a bit? There's a guest that's nervous. Can I go up with them and accompany them? Um, that's something that they love to do. Um, so, and when they see that that's something that um, whenever we can spare that person that you know, we encourage and we embrace. Um, I think they realize how important it is to us. And it's not just lip service um, that we want each visit to be as the best as it can be. And we want their day working here, you know, to be really fulfilling and rewarding. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, one of the things you, you talked about it a little bit ago was about uh, kind of that a lot of people have been promoted. And I would say that the culture of promote from within, uh, can you shed a little light on, I would say the the staff development strategy to ensure that employees coming in have the opportunity to be promoted and just the move through the, the cycle of employment with the ARCH? Sure. Um, so yeah, pretty much all of our frontline supervisors that have been promoted to those full-time roles, they were originally on the floor. Um, from time to time, um, you'll have a hire like myself, who I came in as the manager of operations and was um, eventually promoted to director. So um, I don't have the on the floor experience like everybody um, else on this team. But um, yeah, it's really important to us for them to feel that they have that growth. We are a small department overall. Um, we are part of, like I said, by state development, which is actually the transit agency in St. Louis. Um, so that does the light rail and the buses, the transit system. So compared to that large operation, our tourism division is very small in numbers. Um, and so anything that we can do to show our staff that there is um, some chance of upward movement for, for growth um, and getting them um, tied into different developmental opportunities and trainings whenever we can, um, so that they know that that's their development is important to us, exposing them to different things, um, special projects, you know, if there's somebody that has an interest, anything that we can do like that, I think um, we have a much better chance of retaining them. So Sarah, can you talk a little bit about your your work within the community? Because um, I know that there's, there's other things that really help um, you know, either drive business or just, you know, kind of build relationships. And maybe kind of a second part to that is that, People may not realize, unless they've been to St. Louis, how many attractions are in St. Louis? You know, I was talking to Josh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, like we need to go to St. Louis and do like an attraction pros take St. Louis because there's so yes, many please. different things we could do. Um, you know, the Arch and I'll mention Grant's Farm, one of my favorite places, um, Anheuser-Busch and, and Six Flags and, you know, all these different attractions that there's got to be you know, some sort of relationship with them um, from an attractions community standpoint, but also kind of the St. Louis community at large. So maybe that's a two-part question sure. um, about just your your involvement in the overall community. Yeah. So I'm very active in the St. Louis Attractions Association, and we're fortunate that that community is just so warm and everybody wants to help one another and share ideas. And so we also have a group of operators from all the major attractions and we get together quarterly. First, we just kind of share what's going on at our attractions, um, special events coming up. But then our favorite time at the end is just really jumping into what challenges are you facing? What has worked well for others? Um, helping to generate ideas and sometimes just you know support, especially through the pandemic. Um, that was important. Um, we have, like you mentioned, a lot of world-class um, attractions in St. Louis, many of which are free. 
which is very unique to St. Louis. Um, we have a world-class zoo, um, completely free, and you really don't find that anywhere else. Um, and then the second part of your question, I think about kind of more um, tourism and St. Louis at large. Um, yeah, the future of St. Louis, I think is really bright. We consider ourselves to be one of the best sports town it's in the nation. We have the St. Louis Cardinals and the St. Louis Blues. So we're a big sports town. Um, and there's also a lot of development on the horizon um, related to sports. The St. Louis City Soccer Club um, is about to start playing in their new stadium next year. So that has a lot of buzz in town. And also for um, conventions and group business, I feel like everywhere with the pandemic, of course, we saw those go down. Um, but Explore St. Louis is really um, investing in um, further expansion of our convention center downtown, trying to bring those groups back and really compete with some other similar markets. Um, and so that they just recently broke ground on that. And so we would love to see more groups back and group business. Hmm. So you mentioned the St. Louis Attractions Association, and mm -hmm. in 2019, you were awarded the Spirit of St. Louis Award from the St. Louis Attractions Association. Can you talk a little bit about what went into that award and what that was like? Sure. Um, actually, I was nominated and everything's a secret. I, I didn't learn about it until I was actually being awarded at their um, at their luncheon. So that was such a nice surprise. Um, and I think the nomination was mostly related to all the challenges during construction um, and how I helped with those with the team. Um, so yeah, it was a, a great honor to be recognized in that way um, and continue to go to those luncheons and get to recognize the other um, fantastic professionals in this industry. Awesome. So from the award um, and to certainly what you're doing now, I want to go way, way back because I read something on your LinkedIn profile <laughs> about how when you told your parents you wanted to go into recreation, they, they kind of gave you a funny look or something like that. They, they did. So in fairness to my parents, um, <laughs> by the time I decided to move to recreation, it was my fifth major. I really could not decide what I wanted to do. And I had done all sorts of things in education. And then when I said recreation, yeah, they really looked worried. And uh, my mom had went to the same college um, that I did. She was there in the seventies. And when I told her I was going to major in recreation, she's like, no, I remember those people. And, and they were in the quad, like throwing a ball around. That's what you're going to do. Uh, so uh, yeah, they were a little worried at first. Luckily it's all um, turned out um, really well, but um, I really was just drawn to recreation because to be able to have a job where your job is helping other people have fun. I don't think it you know, can get any better. So when you talk about helping other people have fun, you talk about, we talk about recreation, we talk about the attractions industry, uh, and this might get kind of, kind of broad or, or maybe deep here or so, okay. but as far as the importance of recreation, the importance of helping people have fun, the importance of, you know, the attractions industry in general, what's your, your viewpoint on that as far as uh, just, you know, how critical it is? Oh, I mean, it's so critical. I mean, I think you hear so much in the attractions industry, um, what economic economic driver it is. And of course, that's certainly true and um, very important. But how we're um, benefiting people's lives and giving them great experiences, giving them an outlet, you know, after a crazy week at work. But yeah, to be able to have that impact um, in their, their free time, or like I said earlier, um, getting to see um, just the connections that people have when they're coming with their family, when a Girl Scout troop is coming through, um, you know, there's really just nothing like it. 
um, I have a, um, a five-year-old and an almost set, no, he's almost eight. Mm-hmm. And he was just asking me the other night about work and he's very curious about it. And he actually asked, he's like, well, what do you, why do you do it? And I said, well, of course we work to make money. I was like, but I think a big part of work is helping people. And he was really um, just fascinated by that. And he's like, oh, so you help them buy tickets and, and you help them go to the top. And he, it just like blew his mind. Um, But I just thought it was really sweet, but just really, really true. Yeah. So you're recruiting at a very young age, it sounds like. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) No, and, and I would agree. And I'm, I'm sure Josh does as well, how important the the industry is. And I know when we were, you know, through the pandemic and we were talking about non-essential businesses and employees and um, Josh was making, you know, the the rallying cry that no attractions are essential. And um, I would, of course, agree with that. Um, and I think it's not just about the guests, like you were saying, it's about the employees too, right? Giving them an outlet and giving them the opportunity to help other people because helping people can really feel good, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're able to do that, it can be a uh, uh, something that lifts your spirit uh, more than drains, you know, the the, the energy. So, um, hold absolutely on on board with all of that. Um, I think my question then is, when it comes to continually doing that, and you know, we we hear people talk about burnout, and we hear people mm-hmm. talking about, um, you know, how how tough that can be sometimes. You know, when you get past the point of, you know, your your energy and and that kind of thing. So, how do you balance? that part of the the job where you you know that yourself and your tour guides and your staff they're giving a lot um but also they need to be balanced in terms of what they're getting um and not just monetarily but maybe mm-hmm. even emotionally yeah i mean i think um we all noticed that with the pandemic it really had us um kind of take a step back and look at work life balance um and that's kind of to what i was alluding earlier when i said when we're thinking about our team members you know, what's important to them, what's, you know, their family. Um, like we're really big here. If anybody has a family situation going on, being very clear, you know, we don't want you to feel bad about work. We just want you to do whatever you need to do. Um, and so whether it's that, whether it's, um, a small appreciation event, uh, whether it's, we have a supervisor here who she comes up with the the most fun, um, challenges and just questions. For example, right now, there's something on the board about, do you like coffee or tea better? Just something small. Um, but the staff like gets excited for that question every week. Um, just little things like that. But I think at the end of the day, it comes back to what type of relationships we have with our, um, with our team members and that they feel valued. Um, and so even though we might have a really stressful summer season, which we did, um, those relationships and putting them first, I think helps us kind of ride those waves. Mm. Yeah. So I like coffee better. Matt likes tea for the, you know, so everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> I will add you to the list. Thank yeah, you. Please. <laughs> I, so we've talked a lot about, uh, we've talked about the, the employee experience. And we've also talked about a, a lot about the guest experience. And one thing that Matt and I have been talking a lot about is really the intersection between the two, that a lot of the things that you do uh, to enhance the employee experience can be duplicated to enhance the guest experience and a lot of, and just vice versa. I Can you share a little bit, I would say of, your insight or your viewpoint on how on how those those two aspects of the business intersect? Uh, sure. I mean, of course, we already kind of talked about, you know, if you treat one really well, the other one, of course, is going to get that same benefit, hopefully. Um, 
but I think it's even like on a small, like a smaller level throughout the day. Like we always have a staff kickoff meeting in the morning and the energy that you bring to that meeting um, and the positivity, hopefully, and um, those types of things that when they get on the floor um, or throughout the day, you know, we've really been modeling um, that type of experience, um, whether it was back of house or front of house. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hate to be a broken record, but I just really <laughs> think. I just really think it's so much about, um, you know, treating our team members uh, right and positively and giving them commu good communication and all those things then translate over. Um, we show them how important it is. We give them the tools in their training for how to do that with the guests. Um, and then once they do it and do a great job, having that positive reinforcement that they did a wonderful job. And don't worry about being a broken record. You know, uh, <laughs> if something works, keep going. It does, um, yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I also want to talk about sort of the other side of the the coin, if you will. You know, we, we've all probably had uh, managers and leaders that maybe shouldn't have been in that position or, you know, didn't have the tools and the communication skills um, needed. So what do you look for in someone to, to know that they're ready to be promoted to the next level? Like what sort of qualities or um, outlooks are you, are you, are you trying to um, assess to see if that person's ready? Uh, well, how they treat other people, I think is huge, whether it's their coworkers or if they've had the ability to be a supervisor in any capacity. Um, that's something I definitely look at. Um, their communication, their respect level that they give that person. Um, I look for, even if they haven't had a leadership role in title, what types of things were they doing to take initiative? Um, were they ever wanting to take on, you know, a special project or, you know, um, were they a good role model for others? Um, I feel like the ones with management experience, whether it's, again, they were actually a supervisor of some um, type by name, or they um, were really dedicated to improving a specific operational process. If they can do that on a smaller scale, then those are the types of people that we really look for and we want to promote and help them to develop into larger responsibilities. Mm. Is there any advice that you have for people who want to grow into operational leadership positions that you like to share? I think just any chance that you can get to serve in a leadership role. And again, it doesn't have to be um, an official, you know, title or job that you have, but um, being that strong role model, um, making wise decisions um, in the best interest of the operation um, and being open to doing so many different things under the sun. Um, of course, that whole, you know, if I'm a tour guide and you ask me to do something that's outside of what seems like my scope, that kind of typical, well, that's not my job. I mean, somebody that just really wants to jump in and is willing to try anything. Um, I think if you do that, especially earlier in your career, um, it will so much pay off um, because you never know what kind of opportunities will present themselves when you do. So I'd like to expand that question a little bit and maybe go back to to Sarah, when you were going through your five different majors, yeah. what advice would you give Sarah back then? Um, I think, again, that it's okay to do something very different. Like even when I got into recreation, I didn't really know what I was going to do or um, you know, so many people now do things that are completely out of what they went to school for. So I think just being open to experiences, or even when I first got my first job offer to work in gymnastics, I knew nothing about gymnastics. 
So that was really scary, but I was going to manage this business. Um, so just being open to taking a risk, um, I think I would encourage younger Sarah to do that even more. <laughs> even more. And it's interesting you said, don't be afraid to do something completely different, really ties in with a lot of mm -hmm. the things we were talking earlier of, of thinking outside the box and not being afraid to do something different, whether it's from the operational standpoint or whether it's with your own career and your own uh, your own professional future. So excellent. Uh, Sarah, we still have a few minutes left here, but as we start to wind this down, if people wanted to learn more about the arch or if they wanted to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Sure. Well, the best place would be to go to gatewayarch.com. We have visitor information on there, um, history. We'll just kind of walk you through the whole experience and you can even buy tickets on there. Um, if anybody's interested in reaching me directly, um, probably best is my email, which is seclark, and Clark has an E at the end, at gatewayarch.com. Um, and I'd be happy to chat. And Matt and Josh, we really need to get you on your St. Louis road tour. Yes. Do it. Let's go. Please. Let's go. Do it here first. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Sarah, this has been a fa fascinating conversation. And I just have one quick question uh, before we kind of um, wrap it up. And that has to do maybe with the history of, of the St. Louis Arch. And, you know, we've talked a lot about it from, from a an attraction standpoint and certainly mm -hmm. a, a, the uniqueness of it and how it works and that kind of thing. Um, but what does it mean from a historical uh, standpoint for the city of St. Louis and even the U.S.? Sure. Um, so it was, um, the monument was designed to be a, um, a monument to Thomas Jefferson and his vision of westward expansion. And even though it was built in the 60s, it goes back way further than that. Um, there was a design competition in 1947 um, and a Finnish American architect, Eric Aero Saarinen. Um, he had a design selected in 1949. Um, and although he never got to see it, um, its completion, he died in the early 60s and it was completed in 1965. Um, it's the symbol of um, Westward expansion, the symbol of St. Louis, in my opinion. Um, and then he also um, wanted to have a tram system that went to the top. At the time, the National Park Service didn't have enough funds to make that happen. And so they partnered with Bi-State Development, who again did the transit in town. Um, and then they entered an agreement to do the design um, and then the operation of it. So that's why this um, other entity has been operating the tram um, since it was designed and built. Um, and the trams opened in 1967 and 1968. Um, there was a museum um, in the visitor center um, from very early on, but like I said, it did get completely redesigned um, in 2018. Um, something I really love about the new museum is it also has a gallery dedicated um, to the design and the construction of the arch, which is something um, that we didn't have before. Um, we also have a documentary movie um, that has real footage of building the arch and visitors really love that because um, of course uh, OSHA didn't uh, wasn't around or didn't have quite the same um, restrictions as they do now. So there were construction workers uh, up on the arch. They no harness, um, smoking a cigarette, giving each other a haircut, you know, hundreds of feet um, from the ground without a care in the world. Um, and so people are always just fascinated by that and that um, no one was killed during its construction. Um, it's just um, an amazing um, building. 
that's cool that the museum includes the history of the location itself. I always love when places do that because you you just go there and it's just assumed, right? It, it, it's just here, right? It's it's here for my enjoyment or my experience, whatever it is. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like in, in Chicago, uh, the Museum of Science and Industry, there's a mm -hmm. submarine, a, a U-boat in the museum. And part of the exhibit is how do we get a U-boat into the museum? So <laughs> that, that's what that reminded me of. So yeah. uh, Sarah, this has been uh, so fascinating. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate your time today. And for everyone out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.